Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Spark London. We tell true stories. We tell them live. And we tell them all across London. To attend one of our live shows, head to sparklondon.com. Thank you very much. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the best of Spark London. So these are people that have told their stories at our Brixton night, our Hackney night, and they're people just like me and you that are going to stand up and be brave enough to share that with you today. So are you ready for your first storyteller? Yes. Please put your hands together for Francis. So my story is about living with other people and what it tells you about yourself. And it's set about eight years ago when I first moved down to London from Cheshire, the Surrey of the North. And at the time, I was starting out on what would be a series of unpaid publishing internships. And that was the reason I was coming down. But my real motivation for coming down was to become king of the Camden Goths. (laughs) You see, I'd met a girl about five months previously in Gillies Rock World, Manchester. Anyone know it? No? Just you. (laughs) And she was an uber goth. Now, at the time... I was just a provincial goth, a market town goth, a Vauxhall conference goth. She was at the top of the league, though. She was, you know, trying to qualify for European Championship status. Firstly, she was a cyber goth. For those who don't know what that is, that's basically a goth from a kind of dystopian future made entirely of neon, foam and latex. Secondly, she was Swedish before BBC4 had made that overexposed. Thirdly, thirdly, she had a job which at the time for me was rare in any other goss that I'd met. You know, apart from selling, you know, fishnets and Affleck's Palace, she was working as a management consultant in that London. That was very impressive. And fourthly, she was slightly older than me and described herself as a sub, which I'd later find out meant submissive. Sexy, eh, guys? Anyway, as I was travelling down to London, I had my doubts. Why did she, why did she like me? She was so much more goth than I. But I convinced myself that the reason she'd picked me in that club, the reason we were getting together and I was moving in with her, 
was that she saw in me a goth diamond in the rough, and that under her tutelage we could go on to rule Camden as its dark king and queen. However, when I moved into a flat just off Holloway Road, things were not quite as I had expected. For one of the things, we didn't do any of the stuff that I was accustomed to goths doing. We didn't drink snakebite and black. We didn't listen to Fields of the Neff. We didn't even hang out at the local war memorial. (laughs) What we spent our time doing was cleaning her flat, tidying her flat, and going to Ikea to buy things to clean and tidy her flat. And I was not very good at this. At the time, I was not very domesticated. I basically kept all my clothes on the floor in a big pile, which I called the pile system. I tried to hoover, but she said my hoovering was inefficient. But one thing I did have was my washing up skills. That was my ace in the hand. Because at university, for two years, I'd lived with my girlfriend. And when she'd cooked, I'd done the washing up. Because we are slaves to the patriarchy, but also because my cooking skills were as bad as my cleaning skills. And I'd also been paid. I'd been paid to wash up. I'd worked at the Mill Hotel in Cheshire and been a scrubber there until I was sacked for stealing meringues. So I had a good... I had that. That was in my arsenal. That was in my skill set. The other major problem we had was that whenever I'd managed to convince her, nag her to go out to a goth night, go out to Slimelight, go out to the Dev... She would always be very cold and aloof, and she'd never introduce me to anyone. She even seemed almost like bored to be there with me. And I felt, maybe maybe I'm not as goth as I thought initially was. Maybe she thinks she's a little too goth for me. So you can imagine my happiness when she told me that at the end of the month, to celebrate us living together for that period of time, She was going to invite all her friends around for a housewarming party. This would be my chance to embed myself and London's goth hide like some kind of little goth tick. (laughs) However, when the party actually manifested itself, rather than inviting all her alternative friends that I'd seen on her social media site, she'd instead invite all the people who worked for her at her management consultancy. (laughs) I was mortified, but I decided I'd put a brave face on it. I couldn't really help out with the preparations. I couldn't make all the little Swedish food that she could make. But what I could do was wash up. So at the end of the night, after everyone had gone, all 18 people, I said, don't worry about it. I'm going to do all that washing up. And then afterwards, being male, I require some kind of praise for any kind of domestic duty. And so I went up to her and said, hey, look at this, all the washing up. And she turned to me and she said... Yeah, Elskling, I've been meaning to say something to you. The thing is, you don't rinse. <laughs> and I was like, what? I put it under the water, I scrub it, like the water goes on it. It says, no, 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 you don't rinse. You wash it, but then you don't rinse. But it's okay. Because no British people rinse. And this is why your food is all soapy and disgusting. (laughs) Anyway, I learned four important things that day. Firstly, that my identity has been good at washing up was a house built on sand. Secondly, that I'd been perpetuating a national stereotype without even being aware of it. Thirdly, that's why you have those two sinks in posh kitchens, one to scrub in and then the other to rinse. 
And fourthly, that the reason Sarah had picked me in Jilly's Rock World that five months ago was not because she saw in me goth potential, but that beneath my lipstick, my eyeliner, she saw a mainstream boy who had fit in with her mainstream friends and the mainstream life that she was looking now to have. I never did become king of the goths in that nine months that we spent together. But I did get a lot better at putting together IKEA furniture. (laughs) And I no longer store my clothes on a pile on the floor. But I still don't rinse. (laughs) Thank you. Francis Shire there. One more round of applause for Francis Shire. Or as now he should only be referred to as King of the Canal Café Goths. That's his proper title in this venue. Afterwards, if you see him, please refer to him only as that. Um, I don't rinse either, which is uh, something I think he should know. So we asked about, that was a story about living together and living together. We did ask you at the start about living together and some people stood up and some people said that they knew someone that had a bad habit when living together. Does anyone, anyone feel like sharing? Yes, you. What's your? Can you just say your name for me? It's Sonia. Sonia. Um, and um, in, I lived with three other people, and we each took responsibility for one of the bills, as you do. And it came to the end of the year, and um, the guy who was responsible for the phone bill hadn't paid it once. He'd done nothing, and I can't remember exactly how this happened, but the way we dealt with it was by emailing his mother. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the bad habit comes from you, or...? <laughs> he was bad for not paying it, right. but I feel deeply <coughs> wrong for emailing his mum about it. And what, what, did his mum email back, or...? Yeah, I think she's expressed some concern for his well-being. And how old were you when this happened? Um, in my early 20s. Right, OK. <laughs> very good. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that. Thank, thank you, Sonia. It was lovely. I love the therapy feel that this night takes on as the night goes past. Well done. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Are you ready for your penultimate storyteller, ladies and gentlemen? Yes. Please put your hands together for Robin, ladies and gentlemen. When I was 18, I lived in China for a year on my gap year. And um, because I was there for so long, I got to travel quite a bit, which was great. And we also traveled to slightly more obscure places. And in the winter, um, our first kind of substantial trip away, we decided that we were going to go to Harbin, which is right in the north, sub-Siberia, quite near Russia, um, really fucking cold. And um, because we were very naive and rubbish at research and didn't have smartphones, we kind of hadn't done any research whatsoever into how we were going to get there. But it was okay because in China you can't buy train tickets more than six days in advance. So we rocked up at the train station and it turned out that we had spectacularly good timing, had chosen the worst day of the year to travel. It was the day that everybody in China went home to visit their family for Spring Festival for Chinese New Year. And as such, the train tickets were all sold out. 
apart from standing tickets. Now, there are five tiers um, of transportation on a, on a Chinese train, sorry, five classes. So soft sleep, hard sleep, soft seat, hard seat and standing. And most trains don't even have standing. They're only really, it's the peasant class. And um, Westerners don't really travel on trains at all. So they were a bit dubious that we would even want to take these tickets. But we were a bit like, eh, whatever. Come on, guys, we live in the suburbs. I have taken the train from Kingston to Waterloo. I am fine. (laughs) But the train from Kingston to Waterloo was about 25 minutes. And the train from where we were getting it to Harbin was 24 hours. And we were young and stupid. And we said, don't worry about it. We'll take the tickets. So we bought them and we turned up on the train platform at 1 a.m. And so the fact that the train was arriving at 1 a.m. probably was the first indication that this was not a normal train journey Um, with our massive rucksacks. And the train rolled in and it was packed like full on rush hour tube, northern line at Clapham North packed. And we thought, oh, fuck, what have we done? Um, but being foolhardy, we were like, we are going to get on this train. And so the only way that we did, the four of us with our massive rucksacks, was the guards on the train station platform actually physically pushing us into this train. And it was one of, it was like, it was a big train. It was about maybe, you know, four steps off the platform that you had to get up to get into the door in the first place. And we were sort of like, up and down the train trying to find any space at all and so two of my friends got into the carriage itself and then myself and the fourth person got into the kind of the in-betweeny the joiny bit we couldn't even get into the plat into the uh, the carriages themselves we were just in the joining bit which had about 20 people in there and we were full on squash they they closed the doors behind us and we are you know, like this in the train like okay we can do this 24 hours no worries <laughs> and uh, a little way into the journey we managed to get our rucksacks off, which kind of got swallowed up by the floor and then everyone's just standing on top of them, which meant that we had no food or water for the entire journey because everything was in those bags. But that was OK. We couldn't go to the loo because there was a family of four squatting in the toilet. So that was that was a good thing. Um, and we sort of settled in for the ride and we were just going along and it was um, minus 10 degrees in the carriage where we were. So there was ice on the inside of the walls and our clothes were sticking to the wall and we couldn't move to keep warm because there was nowhere to move to. So it was entirely the warmth of like penguins huddled together just trying to stay alive. And um, we couldn't speak any... Well, we, we could speak a basic Chinese. No one in that carriage could speak English at all. And um, we there wasn't really a lot that we could say. At one point, actually, they... Um, the train one of the train guards came along and although it was a it was a it was a steam train i guess because they came along and although we weren't part of the um the train itself we were just in a carriage he needed to shovel coal into this sort of like i don't even know what it was but he gestured to us and said that we needed to hold everybody back i don't know why he chose my, my Catherine and me because we were twice the size of everybody else and we had to physically hold back the screaming people there was nowhere to hold them to but we did so this guy could shovel coal into the thing and i was thinking am i dreaming is this real and so we carried on and we went through and and as we rolled into each station there was maybe four hours between stations on these trains no one got off but more people got on and it got to the point where the doors couldn't open so they just climbed through the windows and it was there were people on the tables and under the tables and 
three layers deep. There were there was it was just it was impossible. It was the pictures that you see of these trains going through with people hanging out. That was this train. We were on it, and we got to Beijing and we thought, should we just get off? And we thought we've come this far. We can't stop now. We have to keep going. Stupid. Always get off the train. Um, so we stayed on the train. We kept going, and um, during the daylight hours as well, it was better. That was that was um, more bearable. And as the time went on, it got to about maybe twenty hours into the journey, and I suddenly thought, I think I'm going to faint. I've never fainted in my life. I'm not. I'm not somebody who. You know, reacts badly to these kind of situations. I'm like, I can do this, but I couldn't. The blackness was coming in at the sides of my vision, and I thought, if I faint now, I'm going to just collapse, and people are going to step on me. They're going to kill me. They don't care. They don't know who I am. So I said to my friend Catherine, Catherine, I think I'm going to faint. And Catherine is a really kind and compassionate person, and she said, Don't you fucking faint. <laughs> if you faint, I'm going to be sick, and then what are we going to do? Thanks, Catherine. I said, there's not really much I can do about it. I don't, I don't know what to do. And somehow she managed to beat a path from that and conjoining bit into the carriage itself. I, I don't know how, but she did it. She found a space. We, get, we went through with the people, a woman with a bucket and someone else with a folding stool, slightly optimistic, and a man with a puppy in his pocket. And we got through into the carriage itself. And suddenly this bench, which had maybe 10 people in a, on a seat for three, found space and they sat me down and I sat there and water appeared from nowhere and they gave it to me and I realised the compassion of these people they didn't know who I was they didn't care it was evident I was a westerner I clearly had more money than them but they wanted to help me they wanted me to be okay and as I sat there and the colour returned to my cheeks and I thought okay I can get through this and one of my other friends who'd been in this carriage the whole time piped up from a few rows back I've got something that's going to cheer you up and I thought, nothing can cheer me up right now. And she said, no, this is great. Okay, it's fine. It's, I've been practic- we've been practicing this for the last, you know, 20 hours. <laughs> okay. And suddenly, this maybe the half of the carriage near me, about 100 people, 100 Chinese people, there was a call from Lisa. One, two, three, four. And they all, in unison, said... Let me see your funky chicken. What's that you say? I say, let me see that funky chicken. What's that you say? I said, ooh, ah, 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 ooh, ah, 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 ooh. Silence. They did not speak a word of English, these people. I don't think they knew what they were singing. (laughs) But they did it word perfect. (laughs) So I like to think that there are still 100 people somewhere in China who say... In England on the trains, this is what they do. (laughs) Everyone has to leave a legacy, and I guess that's mine. (laughs) Wonderful story about trains there from Robin. Give it up for Robin. Amazing things happen on trains, I think. Amazing things happen on trains. I was in New York last week. 
been waiting to say that all evening. I've been talking about it. That's how I start every sentence at the moment. But I was on a train, and the first time I was on the subway in New York last week, right? And I've never been to New York before. This was amazing. I was getting up at 7am, having no sleep, getting up at 7am because I was so excited to be in New York. My first time on the subway, and I was looking out onto Brooklyn Bridge and seeing all the buildings come up, and I was just grinning, just just so excited. I felt like, you know, it's the movies. I've made it. I looked around. It's 7am, of course. Everybody's miserable. Just blank faces all going to work. And I sit down next to this guy, and he's got gold teeth and cornrows. And he starts talking to me because I'm grinning from ear to ear, you know. And he says, he goes, I've lost my headphones, man. I've lost my, I can't believe I've lost my headphones. Can you believe that I've lost my headphones? And I had some free headphones from the plane. So I just got out my headphones and said, you know what, you can have these, like, just have them. And he was so bowled over by this gesture. Like, he was so, like, I can't, but I lost my headphones and you gave me your headphones. <laughs> that just happened. I can't, I, can't, I can't believe you just did that. I said, no, it's, like, it's fine. It's okay. He goes, I've got to give you something. Like, it's all right. I mean, I've got to give you something. And then out of his pocket, he pulled out this massive bag of weed. <laughs> And just put it in my hand. So this is rush hour on the New York subway. There I am holding a massive bag of weed. So obviously I have to sort of put it in my bag. Thanks. Very, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and then he went, I smoked the best weed in America. They call me Amsterdam. So I had a great time in New York. Brilliant things happen on trains if you, uh, if you smile at people and do weird things. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Are you ready for your final storyteller of the evening? Yes. Yes, yes very excited. So this is the last time you get to welcome a Spark storyteller to the stage. So I want you to give it your all. As you welcome to the stage, Neil 
Denny. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm going to tell a story about the only time in my life I've been on a package holiday. So I never went on holiday with my parents abroad when I was a kid. We would go to Blackpool or Skegness, but we never managed to get abroad. So I was desperate to go abroad as soon as I possibly could. And when I was 17, I went off and travelled around Europe for a month on the train on my own. And then that sort of set a pattern of what I would do. So I've never, ever done that thing where you go into a travel agent and get brochures and book a holiday. And then one day through this weird, which is a whole other story, bonus scheme that my work introduced for one year, I won a thousand pounds of Thomas Cook vouchers. Right? Yeah, that's amazing, right? That's, that's, I've never won anything before. Amazing thing. But it was also a bit of a problem because, and yeah, really, seriously, I'm going to moan about winning a thousand pounds of Thomas Cook vouchers now. I really am going to go there. So there was weird conditions with the vouchers in that, you couldn't just book flights with them and you had to book a holiday through a certain number of quite big, you know, famous holiday companies. So we were presented with this big pile of brochures, my my girlfriend then, my wife now. We had this pile of brochures to go through where we needed to find something that we could sort of, you know, convert into the type of holiday that we would like to do. And we finally whittled it down to a two-week fly-drive holiday to New England. Great, we go away and we find ourselves in the early spring in Cape Cod and we have a wonderful time and just as we thought was going to happen, it's completely empty, there's hardly anyone there and people were like really grateful. You go into a bar or a cafe and they would talk to you because they weren't rushed off their feet and they were grateful for the custom. And then the second week, we go to New Hampshire and we go to this place called North Conway it's about Washington, you can get the funicular, up Mount, funicular train up Mount Washington, and it's, it's the highest mountain to the east of the Mississippi. And then we also went to, we went to, see the, um, went to Bretton Woods to see the hotel, the Mount Washington Hotel, which is where the Bretton Woods Conference was held. And John Maynard Keynes and a load of people set out the uh, post-war expenditure for the rebuilding of Europe. That's the sort of thing I liked on my holidays when I should be on a beach like everybody else. Okay? But then by the end of the week, we'd run out of stuff to do. There was nothing else to do in North Conway. And to be fair, we'd, we'd been for a, a long walk the day before. We'd overdone it and we were really aching. We didn't want to do any more walking. So I said on a whim, why don't we get up tomorrow morning and let's go to Canada. Let's just go to Canada and see what Canada's like. And it was, it was a four-hour drive to Canada. But looking on the map, it was obviously through... There was nothing north of North Conway to Canada. There was no other towns of any significance. Just miles and miles and miles of wilderness. It'll be a lovely drive. So we got up early and we went, and then we pile up to the Canadian border four hours later. And there's a Canadian border guard, he jumps out and he comes up and he goes, and he's smiling and he says, hello, you know, what business have you, you know, what's your business in Canada today? And I say to him, we've been on holiday in America for two weeks, we've run out of stuff to do, we were bored, we thought we'd come to Canada, have a look around, see what it's like. And he laughed, he thought that was funny, and he said, well, on you go, I hope you find it to your satisfaction. And we drove into Canada. Now, as I've already mentioned, there's nothing between North Conway and the Canadian border, but there was also nothing for hundreds of miles after the border. So there's nowhere to go. There wasn't really anything to see. And Quebec, which is where it was, the other side of the border, of course, looked exactly the same as America, this side of the border. 
suddenly the map, you know, the map that we had bore no relation to what the roads looked like actually out in the real world. And we went one way thinking we were going on this road on the map. And pretty soon we were, we were hopelessly lost. Like we were about 10 minutes across in the border. We were, we were just completely lost. So we go up to this farmhouse. I get my wife to go out and go to this farmhouse and ask for directions. She knocks on the door. I see her up at the door. She's speaking to the person at the door. She comes back to the car. They didn't speak any English. Okay, our French isn't good enough to ask for directions back to the border because we're hopelessly lost. So we drive on and we come to another farmhouse about 10 miles further down this road. And she gets out again and goes, comes back, same thing. And it, we, we go to another two places before we find someone who can give us directions back to the border. And as it turns out, we thought we were driving deeper and deeper and deeper into Canada. We were actually going quite parallel to the border. And the guy had said, go out down to another 100 yards down the road, there's a left, and you're going to go back into Vermont. So we'd driven like, quite parallel to the border. We're going to go, so that's great, we'll see some of Vermont, that'll be nice as well. So we drive along and we come up to the border station. And this time, the American border guard comes out, hat on, mirror sunglasses, impassive look on his face, comes up to the window, I roll down the window, and he says, you know, state your business in the US. And I say, well, <laughs> we've been on holiday in the US for two weeks. We got bored, so we've run out of stuff to do. We came to Canada. We've had a look around for a bit. We got lost. Now we're coming back. <laughs> And he looks at me, and he says, Sir, ma'am, I'm going to need you to get out of the car now. <laughs> what I haven't yet told you is when this actually happened. I've sort of saved it to now, because also at this point, looking at this guy in the face was the realisation to me as well why this was significant. And we'd got these vouchers. I got these vouchers at the end of the financial year, say in April, and they'd sat in a drawer for a while because we couldn't really figure out what to do. And then while we had these vouchers in this drawer, 9-11 happened. Okay. And I really seriously also factored that into the consideration of that this would be a good time to go to America because it would be quieter. <laughs> now, I, I made some, you know, I did sort of say, oh, you know, we should go to America, show solidarity, show our support, people are not going. But really it was because I knew it would be quieter and we'd have a better time. And it worked. It was great. Even on, on Cape Cod, people actually said that to us. They said, you know, thank you for coming. It's great because we thought this season might be really bad and people wouldn't come. And so, this was, so that was September. So this was April. So six months, but roughly six months after. And, we, you know, we had a, a fantastic time. We had a really great holiday, you know, thanks to the good people at Thomas Cook. And it has to be said, the, you know, the horrible and pointless death of thousands of people. But... Now, I've said something unforgivably flippant to a member of the American Border Patrol, and I realise that I've made a terrible mistake. So, they interrogate us for two hours. I say interrogate, I mean, basically, they made us go through every single thing we'd done in the two weeks in America. It went through my passport, which had stamps on it from places like Tunisia and Morocco and and India and Turkey, wanted to know why I'd been to all of these places and what were they like... There was a, a really weird, the bit, the bit where it got the scariest was, my wife is from the West Midlands, and he looked in her passport and he said to her, he literally did that thing where he said, oh, I see you're from, mispronounces West Midland town. My cousin, Randy, lives just near there. Do you know him? Like, literally did that. <laughs> and she said, I'm sorry, I don't, know what, I don't know where that town is. 
And he went, oh, he says in your passport, that's where you were born. And he looked really serious and weird and it got really quiet. And then she went, oh, oh, Blockswitch. Oh, no, you pronounced it wrong. It's Blockswitch. You pronounce it Blockswitch like this. Which, thinking this was going to make him feel better, it didn't. He seemingly got angrier at the fact that she was correcting him. Now, all the time this is happening, I'm sitting next to a window looking out at the car, which is parked here. And somebody else, another border guard, is searching the car literally opening the doors, trying to remove the panels inside the doors. He gets one of those things with a mirror on it that they look for bombs under, under cars with. And he's looking at that. And then the guy says, OK, we need to go out and look at the car. Come on, we'll, we're all going to go out and, and look at the car. And we walk out to where the car is. And just as we do, a pickup truck is coming down the road. And it's clearly like a guy, he's, his arm out and he's got a, a baseball cap on. It's clearly a local man who probably drives this route two or three times a day or something. And as he drives past, he says to the border guard, slow day. And the border guard goes, yep, really slow day. And they look at him, and for the first time in two hours, he smiles. And not only does he smile, but he cracks into what I believe the Americans call a shit-eating grin. (laughs) And he hands us our passports and sends us on our way. And we drive away, chastened and mildly inconvenienced, understanding that we've basically been fucked around for two hours by some bored border patrolmen. (laughs) And as we reconstructed it as we drive, we're talking about what I've just described to you as an interrogation. And my wife was saying, well, they were just asking us what we did on the holiday, like they're interested. (laughs) (laughs) It was really scary. I thought we were. I thought they were never going to let us back in, and all our stuff's in the hotel, and we were going to go. So we drove back to the four-hour drive back to the hotel, and the next day we drive back to Boston, and we go on the plane to go to the airport to fly home. I think for the first time ever, I stood in the queue for passport control. What had mildly been an inconvenience to us, you notice people that don't look like me getting pulled out of the queue to be processed separately, and you realise in that post-9/11 world that was going to be business as usual for a lot of people. And I think that, you know, I had at that moment also the realisation that what had happened to me was one day going to be an absolutely fantastic dinner party anecdote. Neil Denny, everybody. And he is the host of the Little Atoms podcast, which I recommend you all listen to. It's one of the best podcasts I've ever heard, genuinely. So that brings us to the end of our evening. Oh, I know, I know. So let's, as we round up our evening, give it up for all our great storytellers this evening. Francis Shire, Robin Yankel and Neil Denny. And also, thank you to Kit Lovelace on the piano, ladies and gents. Thank you all for coming. You've been a beautiful audience. My name's Charlie Harrison. Your producer was Matt Hill. Thank you very much for coming. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.